Well, good morning. I think he misused the word genius. However, you probably knew I wasn't Matt anyway, because Matt always wears a shirt with just one pocket, and I wear a shirt with two pockets, so I'm way cooler than Matt. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll get a pocket protector later. So as Matt said, I'm John Cogan. I'm an elder here at Pinion Hills Church, and I also teach the Bible. I'm a lay pastor, and I want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July weekend. 243 years ago, 56 men got together and signed a piece of paper that has given us the freedom to come here this morning and worship together. And I say, God bless them. So did you celebrate the 4th of July? Did you go see the fireworks on Sullivan Hill? How many saw the fireworks? Weren't those great? Yeah, we took the grandkids out to see them. My granddaughters loved it. They sat there and they swayed and they talked about the pretty colors. My grandsons watched the big explosions in the sky. I wonder, why do we take our little boys out to see big explosions in the sky and then we wonder why little boys want to blow things up. <laughs> you know, being summer, it's a time for birds. My wife, Karen, loves birds. And uh, the other day, it was really interesting, she was sitting or standing at the kitchen sink working on supper, looking out the backyard, and she heard a bunch of birds out there tweeting, chirping, twittering. And she said, aren't they pretty? And I thought they were kind of loud. So I opened the back door and I looked out, and I have never seen this before in my life. There were birds of all kinds of species together. There were robins, there were house finches, there were goldfinches, there were English sparrows, and they're all sitting up on the utility lines up above our deck. And there was one male house finch, and he was sitting on a line right above the deck, and he was louder than everybody. And I thought, what is going on? And I looked up at him, and I looked down on the deck, and there sat Ivan, our rather large cat, swishing his tail, looking angry at the birds. Ivan has been known to chase and unfortunately sometimes catch birds. And these birds, all these different species got together to warn each other about the danger down on the deck. And I thought that was amazing. But it made me think of us as Christians. Like those birds, we as Christians have to be ready to face challenges to what we believe. We have to answer questions from skeptics, and we have to be ready to give an answer about what we believe and why we believe it. Sometimes I think when we're challenged, we feel like, we're under the hot interrogation lights. When Matt and I were talking about this sermon, that was one of the reasons we called it heat index. Because we as Christians are often under those lights, the hot lights. What do you believe and why do you believe it? So I want to begin this morning by reading from God's Word. This is from the 15th chapter 
of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, the first letter to the first church at Corinth. I'm beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom remain until now, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. Let's begin this series in prayer. Father in heaven, we know these are days of difficulty, and rather than seeking you, many seek pleasures and other idols. Keep us from false worship. Guide us by your Holy Spirit to learn your truth. Equip us to share it with the world. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Jim. Jim was an atheist. He'd grown up in a family where his mother was married twice, the first time to a Catholic, the second time to a Mormon, and Jim had no use for religion. He became a cop, then he became a detective, and then he found a job he really liked. He became a cold case homicide detective. And you know what a cold case is. That's a murder case that has sat in the files for years unsolved. Well, Jim started digging into these dusty old files and finding answers that nobody else had been able to find. After a while, he brought some of them to the DA, and they took some of these cold cases, some of which dated back years, a few dated back decades, back into the 1970s. And they started taking them to trial, and he and his DA never, never lost a case. They won every single case in trial. Now, Jim was a confirmed atheist, but one of his co-workers challenged him to read the Bible, and he thought, oh yeah, I, I can read the Bible, and I can find all the holes in it. So he started reading, and he started reading in the Gospels. And he, as he was reading the Gospel accounts, he realized something about them. They sounded a lot like eyewitness accounts, like the accounts that he got when he interrogated a witness. He was amazed. He read Paul's letters. He was surprised. These sounded like they recorded historical events. It didn't sound like made-up stuff. He was convinced. He was convinced that the Bible recorded actual history. And Jim Wallace, also known as J. Warner Wallace, cold case homicide detective for the Torrance, California Police Department, became a Christian. Then he became an apologist, and today he is one of the great apologists of our time. Okay, now I know some of you are asking, what is an apologist? That's not somebody who apologizes for being a Christian, is it? No, no, it is not. We get the word apologist from 
a reading in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Now the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for make a defense is the word apologia, from which we get the English words apologetics and apologist. So an apologist is just someone who defends the faith. And who, who did Peter call to be an, an apologist? He didn't specify. He called every one of us to be. You, me, every believer is called to be an apologist. Ah, uh, but the skeptics are persistent. They are tough. They put us under the heat lamps. They ask some really hard-hitting questions. So what we're doing in this series is we are going to provide you this week and the next two weeks with some of the answers you need as a Christian to answer those skeptics. And the first two that we're going to talk about today, was Jesus a real historical person? And is the Bible... This book here, is this truly the Word of God? Can you explain for a fact how you know Jesus was a real person? Can you explain how you know this is the Word of God? Yes, many of us have had the Holy Spirit inspire us to know that. But you've got to have more than that. There's people in other religions who say the Holy Spirit inspired them, that their book is the Word of God. No, there are reasons, rational reasons, as to how we know this is the Word of God. So, if we want to find out if the biblical narratives, like Jim Wallace discovered, are historical records, who do you go to? What kind of experts? Well, we go to historians. And we've got to be fair. We have to go to historians of the first century who are believers and those who are skeptics and non-believers. We can't just ask the Christian historians. We know the answer they'll give. Let's ask the people who are not Christians as well. I want to examine the passage we just read a few minutes ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And almost every historian of the first century agrees that the Apostle Paul was a real person who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. And they all agree that he wrote 1 Corinthians. And they all agree he wrote it about 55 A.D. Now you realize that if Jesus died in 33, that's only 25 years. He may have died, or 22 years. If he died in 30, it's only 25. It's a very short time. But they also say, you know these words of Paul? I deliver to you what I also first received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It didn't sound like Paul. He wrote it, but it doesn't sound like him. And historians, all the historians said, this is a creed. He's reciting a creed. It's like an early Apostles' Creed, except it's really early. And historians have dated that creed all the way back to within five years or less of Jesus' crucifixion. Possibly as close as one year. Now, myths and legends take a long time to grow up. 
You cannot have myths and legends grow up in five years. So this had to be historically accurate. Myths and legends begin differently anyway. How do myths and legends begin? Once upon a time, or in the days of old when the gods were fierce and angry, things like that. That's not how the, the Gospels begin. Let's take, for instance, the Gospel of Luke. Listen to how Luke begins his Gospel, and he does not begin it as if it's a legend. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the, the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Then he goes on to say, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Herod was a real person. If you look at what Luke says, the first part of chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Sounds like history. It's written to be history. It's not written to be a myth. If we study other historical places, people, we discover that the Bible gets these facts right. Time and time again, archaeologists have discovered that the Bible is real. And archaeologists agree that yes, this all really happened. Ah, but skeptics, you know what skeptics claim? Skeptics claim that Jesus' apostles made up the stories of Jesus. And I wonder about that. Jesus' disciples made up the story of Jesus. Wait, wait a second. This is what we apologists call a self-refuting statement. If Jesus didn't live, he didn't have any apostles. So, Jesus didn't have apostles who could have made him up. The skeptics throw all kinds of things like this at us. And we have to, as apologists, be ready to answer those. The historical... The literary, the archaeological, and the internal evidence of the New Testament indicates that Jesus lived. The evidence is overwhelming. And first century historians, both believers and non-believers, agree that the New Testament is historically reliable. You can read it like a history book. The people who don't believe it are generally people like theologians and philosophers, scientists, people who have no learning in history. So the expert's conclusion is you can trust this historically. But being reliable history doesn't make it the Word of God, does it? No, it doesn't. But it will tell us what Jesus said. So we can go to it and see who did Jesus claim to be and why do I care? So just who did Jesus claim to be? Well, first of all, Jesus claimed to be God. No, I know, he never said, I am God. No, but in John 8, 58, he said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Ego ami in Greek. 
It's the same words God used to identify himself when he talked to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. Who shall I say is sending me? Tell them, I am that I am is sending you. I am. So Jesus used this word to tell people, Ego a me, that I am God. In uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 61, the high priest, Caiaphas, was questioning Jesus. It says, again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven and tearing his clothes. The high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What blasphemy? Claiming to be God is blasphemy. Caiaphas knew he was claiming to be God. Secondly, Jesus accurately predicted that he would die and rise from the dead. If we go to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, this is what we read. And he's talking about his disciples. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Matthew 16.21 tells us, From the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. His disciples didn't hear him, they didn't believe him, but Jesus predicted it. Third, what did he do? He was crucified. And he died. And what happened on the third day? He rose, just like he predicted he would. An amazing prophecy. So, the skeptics are going to say, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, there's a guy named Gary Habermas, who is a professor of history at Liberty University, and he did a study of all of the papers written about Jesus by historians, believers and non-believers, from the 1970s through, and I think he's still keeping track of it, he's still alive, so at least through this decade. And he's found that a vast vast majority of believing and non-believing historians believe in five facts. They all will say, yes, Jesus was crucified by the Roman authorities. They all say, almost without exception, yes, he was buried in a tomb. They almost all agree that the tomb on the third day was reported to be empty, and no evidence has ever been found that there is anything else that can explain the empty tomb. Fourth, they believe his disciples, or I'm sorry, they, they agree his disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead and reported seeing the risen Christ for many days after that. And fifth, these disciples, this bunch of frady cat disciples who were hiding when Jesus was crucified, all but one, and he went into hiding after that, 
suddenly these disciples became bold. They were transformed from cowardly followers to believers and proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus. They were even willing to die. To die for the truth they proclaimed. And many of them did. And among these were the initial believers, James and Paul. There's been a number of explanations offered for all of these facts, and they all fall flat. They're all speculation. Well, uh, maybe Jesus just fainted on the cross. Now, these were Roman executioners. They did not let anybody survive the cross. Well, maybe Jesus had a twin double. Really? Why don't we ever hear anything else about this twin double until he's necessary for the resurrection? Now, the only reasonable explanation for these five facts is that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. So, if Jesus, who claimed to be divine and who accurately predicted his own death and resurrection, if he declared something, shouldn't we believe him? Wouldn't you believe somebody who claimed to be God, who proved he was God, who proved he rose from the dead, wouldn't you believe him? So let's see, what did Jesus think of the Bible? Now, of course, Jesus did not have the New Testament, but he had the Old Testament scriptures. And he claimed the Old Testament scriptures were the word of God. In John 5.22, he specifically called them the word of God and said they could not be broken. That means they're inspired. They are the inerrant word of of God. So here's Jesus, who's risen from the dead, saying the scriptures are the word of God. Should we believe him? Yeah, I, I do. That's enough for me. Ah, now you're going to say, what about the New Testament? Yeah, we have a New Testament in here. What did Jesus say about the New Testament? Well, it hadn't been written yet. But, he claimed, he claimed before it was written, he claimed ahead of time that it would be the word of God. Here's how. If you listen to what he says in John 14, verses 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So they don't even have to remember it on their own. The Holy Spirit's going to help them remember it. Further on in the upper, course, uh, upper room discourse, Jesus says, John 16, 12 through 15, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus, the Son of God, who rose from the dead, as per his prediction told his disciples that they could be assured that the Holy Spirit 
was going to inspire them. And this book, the New Testament part, was written by his disciples and the followers of his disciples who learned from the disciples. So Jesus said, both the Old and the New Testaments are the inspired Word of God. Do you believe him? I do. Now that's not to say that the Holy Spirit won't also give you assurance that you're reading the Word of God. In fact, if you read it, it sounds like the Word of God. But you can prove it rationally to the skeptics, and they are going to ask you this, and you are going to be challenged more and more as this becomes a more secular society. And you will have to be ready to answer them. So let's review our argument, okay? First, Jesus was an historical figure whose biography is recounted in the New Testament. The gospel accounts are historically reliable. They're good history. Good history book to start with. Second, in the gospel accounts, Jesus predicted he would be killed and rise from the dead. Third, Jesus was killed. He was crucified just like he predicted. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is perfectly trustworthy. Perfect prophet, perfect son of God. Jesus claimed the Old Testament scriptures are God's word and cannot be broken. He further assured us that the Holy Spirit would inspire the New Testament scriptures. Therefore, the scriptures can be trusted perfectly and accepted as the word of God. you have a Bible? It is the Word of God. It's not the Word of God because some old preacher from 200 years ago said, believe this is the Word of God because I say so. It's the Word of God because the facts tell us it's the Word of God. We can trust that. So now you, you have got, learned some apologetics this morning. And I appreciate Matt allowing me to teach my class here this morning. And you now know how you can show somebody that when you hold a Bible, you hold God's very word. But you know, there's, there's more to it than just answering the skeptic, isn't there? There's an application for us. I mean, if this is really God's word... How many people are out there right now saying they're seeing visions and God's telling them this or somebody from up there is telling them something, they've seen an angel or whatever? You're hearing a lot of that. A lot of people are claiming that they're hearing from God. And people are looking through books and stuff and saying, oh, what, did, what is God saying now? You know, you don't have to do that. You know this is the word of God. You can go hear God's word here. And if the Bible is truly God's word, and if we truly love God, won't we also love his word? Doesn't that make sense? I love God. I want to hear what he has to say. You know, there's uh, a lot of ways to study scripture, and I would encourage you to study it. Pastor Matt has talked before, for those of you who have smartphones or, or, uh, smartphones or Kindles or computers, you can go on and find the YouVersion app, which has 
I don't remember, something like 20 different English translations and translations in any language you want. It also has reading plans, and you can get on there. And my favorite reading plans are the ones where you read a little bit every day, and you can read through the whole Bible in a year. You can absorb some of God's Word every day. And if you have not started doing that, wouldn't today be a great day to start showing how you love God by getting into His Word, because you'll learn more about God and you will love Him more. If you need help and direction, sometimes just reading on your own is hard. Pinion Hills has a number of community groups that study God's Word. And you can go to those. There are men's and women, women's Bible studies. And now in the interest of being self-serving, I will tell you that on Tuesday nights, we have a Bible study apologetics class over here in the classroom building in room one at 6.30, which I teach. And we spend most of the school year studying books of the Bible, and we spend the summer doing apologetics. And in fact, this Tuesday and the next two Tuesdays, we are going to dig deeper into the sermon topics. So I would invite you, if you're interested in what we talked about today, we're going to talk about it more deeply this Tuesday, 6.30, room one. You know, the scriptures tell us one more thing that's really important. You remember what Jesus said in the upper room discourse about himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except by me. Skeptics challenge us. You Christians say Jesus is the only way. No, I don't say it. Jesus said it. I just listened to Jesus. He's the Son of God and he rose from the dead. He also, in John 5, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, you have eternal life. You will not come into condemnation, condemnation, but have passed over from death to life. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you made that commitment? Have you been coming to Pinion Hills for weeks, maybe months, maybe years, and you've been thinking, I need to make that commitment? Today may be the day to repent of your sins to call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. And if there are some of you who want to make that commitment today, I want you to pray along with me. And for the rest of us, those who have already made that commitment, I want you also to pray along with me because Jesus never minds us recommitting our lives to him. So if you would bow your heads.
Let's pray. Father, you have provided us with the opportunity for eternal life through the atoning death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. But I am a sinner, Lord. And there's nothing I can do to rescue myself from my sin except call on the name of Jesus to believe in him, to believe in his resurrection. And so today I do that. I call on you, Father, to forgive my sins through the power of Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. And I call on the name of Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. And I pray this in the holy and blessed name of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.